Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. How about this worship team? Yeah. How about our Savior? Acts 17. Acts 17 is where we are today. Uh, We're just making our way. If you're new to North Roanoke, we're so thankful you're here. We believe God wrote a book. And there's 66 books in it, and so we study the book, generally speaking, the way it's been written. We just walk through books of the Bible. And um, I I would be remiss, uh, thought just popped in my head, got the ADHD going strong this morning. Um, Puerto Rico team was delayed, their their flight was canceled yesterday, so they're actually, they should be on a plane like right now. So we need to pray for them uh, and their travel back, and for some of them, that's really impacting their work, right? They were planning to get back yesterday and have today to rest. Some of them actually have to go to work tonight. So um, in just a minute, we're going to pray over our text and also for our, our team in Puerto Rico. In fact, why, why don't we do that now? Would you join me? God, we, we thank you that we get to open your word. We thank you that we have a team who has been on the ground for a week uh, building and laboring and loving others because we believe you have spoken. We believe that you have revealed your son and that saving, that salvation is in him. God, that uh, people who put their hope and faith and trust in Christ as revealed in the scriptures will be saved. And God, we thank you for those who've stepped up and gone. And we pray, Lord, for their safe return today. We pray for those who have to turn around very quickly and get to work, God, that you would refresh their spirit and give them energy from above, from on high, for the tasks that are before them. God, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts 17 uh, is where we are, and we're going to consider this morning two responses to the Word of God, two responses to the Word of God. Last week, we saw God used Paul and his team to plant the church in Philippi. It was a church comprised, if you'll remember, from a wide range of backgrounds, right? There was a successful businesswoman named Lydia and her family. Then there's a a slave girl. And then there is this jailer, sort of this middle-class guy and his family. They're all rescued by Christ and brought into the church there in Philippi. And today, the mission moves from Philippi to Thessalonica and then down to Berea, as we're going to consider in these two cities, two very different approaches to the scriptures. One approach which is defensive and deceptive and deflects from Jesus, and another which is open to hearing the word of God and to examining the scriptures for what they are, which is a a revelation of Christ, a witness to Christ. Would you hear with me from Acts 17 down through Verse 15, the word of the Lord. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, 
explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and When they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. All right, what can we learn from these 15 verses? There's, there's a lot. I really just want to show you two things, but before I get to the two main things, I, I want to set the context. Paul is moving on in his mission in, into Europe, or what we now know as Europe, and the first thing he does when he gets to Thessalonica is what? He goes to the synagogue, just like he's done before, and he proclaims, Paul proclaims, that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed of God, revealed in the scriptures, showing that his death and resurrection were necessary. In other words, they were according to the divine plan. His death and resurrection didn't catch God by surprise. It was consistent with what God had promised from the very beginning. That's what we see in verses 1 through 4. Paul and Silas have just been, by the way, beaten in Philippi, right? beaten and then imprisoned. And we could, we could forgive them if they were like, you know what, we wandered around for four to 500 miles, then we crossed the Aegean Sea, the Macedonian said come, a church has been started in Philippi, our backs are pretty achy right now, why don't we just check out and head back home for a little while, get a little respite. That's not what they do. What do they do? They go through Amphipolis and then Apollonia, which were two cities that were about equidistant from one another on the way to Thessalonica. So they probably overnighted in these cities on the way to Thessalonica, which is about 100 miles from Philippi. Now, Amphipolis was a significant city, and yet the team seems eager to get to Thessalonica. Merida tells us why. Because it was an important seaport. It was a capital of the province of Macedonia, and it was the second largest city in Greece boasting about 200,000 people. So you think about the Roanoke Valley, 250 to 300,000 people. It was, it was about 200,000 people in, in size. 
So when they get to Thessalonica, the team goes to the synagogue. They, they start, uh, and Luke tells us this was Paul's custom, right? Paul's already told us, look, just because I have a commission to take the gospel to the Gentiles, it doesn't exclude me from taking the gospel to the Jews. In, in every place, people who have received the Old Testament, the promises of God, will be the first to hear that the Savior, the Christ, has come. So Paul takes three Sabbaths with the Jews, most likely three consecutive Sabbaths, and he does what? He explains the scriptures. He explains that Jesus is the Christ. He proclaims Jesus to them. And in three weeks' time, what is he doing? He's establishing his presence and his credibility. He doesn't just blow in and blow out. He lingers there for a while. So here's a question for us. While we are not at least most of us in this room, are not uh, full-time missionaries taking the gospel to new territory, we can all be like Paul, right? We can all find ways to be present with people so that we can establish an opportunity to get them the gospel. Maybe it's volunteering in our kids' ministry or our student ministry on a consistent basis so they begin to see a, another adult other than their parent or guardian who's investing in them. Maybe it's serving at the Blue Ridge Women's Center. Maybe it's just playing on your company softball team and being the only guy who doesn't use words that everyone else on your team uses when things don't go well. And then at some point they ask you, and maybe when all the guys go to the bar after, you go with them, but you get a Coke. And at some point somebody asks you, why don't you ever have fun with us? And you're like, I'm having fun. And I was just waiting for you to ask that question. Let me tell you about Jesus. Some of you, maybe you need to get involved in coaching. Maybe you're really gifted uh, musically or, or athletically, and you just need to use that talent to get around other people to establish presence with them so that you get the opportunity to tell them about Jesus, to proclaim Jesus to them. Now, we don't want to just get around people to be around people, right? I mean, some of you are introverts, and you're like, I'd rather just not be around people. Well, I understand that, but you got to launch out because you have a message that other people need to hear got to be intentional about getting with people. Of course, this intentionality is not just hanging out. It's about sharing Jesus. Paul and the mission team are not at the synagogue to shoot the breeze, right? They're there to share the gospel, verse 3. They're there to proclaim Jesus to them. And to proclaim Jesus to people who are familiar with the Old Testament, we need to reason with them from the scriptures, verse 2. Do you see that? He reasoned with them from the scriptures. To reason, the word to reason means to discuss something thoroughly or to argue or to lecture. Now, the word argue doesn't mean to be argumentative. It just means to make a defense for something, to make an argument, to say, here's the Old Testament and here's Jesus. So Paul is opening the scriptures and he's making the case for believing in Jesus as the Christ revealed and promised in the Old Testament. Luke says Paul is explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. Did you notice that Paul's doing the exact same thing that Jesus did in Luke 24 with the disciples after his resurrection? Remember they're walking with him and they're like, who is this guy? And then he settles in with his disciples and what do we read in Luke 24? Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And what did he say? Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer 
on the third, and on the third day rise from the dead. Why? That repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now, 20 years later, after Jesus' resurrection, Paul is proclaiming the very same message. Christ had to suffer and die so that you could be forgiven. Jesus doesn't come and just wipe away your sins without paying the debt. He paid the debt. Some of y'all have been watching a bunch of stuff on social media about the comparison between the elimination of student debt and Jesus canceling your debt. Here's the deal, y'all. Jesus came and voluntarily laid down his life to pay that debt. He didn't just wipe it away. He paid the debt. If he didn't pay the debt, the debt's still owed to God, and you're in a big pile of trouble, and I am too. Praise God. He canceled the debt by paying it, and he's the only one qualified to do so. So Paul explains, and he proves. To explain something means to open it fully. To prove something means to demonstrate or place something alongside of something else. Paul is walking through the storyline of the Bible. God created, man fell, he promised a redeemer. Jesus is that redeemer. He's telling the story of the Old Testament and then he's holding up Christ and he's saying, look, you can set Christ alongside the story and they match Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole of the Old Testament. He is the son that Abraham was looking for in Genesis 22 when he took Isaac up Mount Moriah, believing that even if he had to sacrifice him, that God would raise him from the dead on the third day. He's the son of David who walks through the valley of the shadow of death and yet fears no evil because God is with him even in the face of the cross, even in the face of his enemies. And somehow he's raised up on the third day to do what? Dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. He is the sin conquering, death defeating, curse removing, forgiveness offering son and king, the Christ, the anointed of God has come to rescue people from all nations and kings will bow to him. And he had sent Paul and his team to announce that his victory is available to anyone, anyone, anyone who will trust in him. These words, explaining and proving and reasoning, these are brainy words, are they not? Paul used his brain. He was there with a heart for people, but he still had to use his brain. And, and there's, a, there's a tragedy in evangelical, in the American evangelical world today that tries to say if you're heady, if you're knowledgeable, if you think about God's word that somehow you're heartless and you don't, you don't, you're not using your heart. Don't separate the heart and the head. God puts the head and the heart together. If you're passionate for Jesus, you're going to want to know the word that reveals Jesus. If you're passionate for people, you're going to want to know what God has said and how it reveals Jesus so that when you have a conversation with them, you can go more than 30 seconds in and explain and expose who Jesus is out of the Bible. They aren't contradictory to one another. Is this on? Are y'all with me? Do you understand what I'm saying? Because some, well, you just, you get to, you know, you, you geek out on the, on the Bible. Yes, I do. Because it's showing me Jesus. And there's nothing greater. We said, open up the heavens, show us your glory. How do we do that? We open the Bible. And we mine it for treasure, and the treasure is Christ. And here's the problem. Where, where is Paul? 
He is in the place where they've been listening to the Old Testament for generations. They should see this. It should be clear to them. But here's what happened to them, and I'm afraid it happens to Christians today. It becomes background noise. Yeah, I know that story. I've heard that one before. Why, why are we going through the Bible in three years in the Gospel Project? Why, why don't we get something else? Because you forget it. And it becomes like the, the sitcom on TV when I'm studying and my family is gathered around watching uh, television in the evening. And at the end of the show, they're like, hey, Dad, what did you think of that show? And I'm like, I have no clue because I have no idea what was said because I was doing something else. And if we come to church and we show up just because we're supposed to be there, but we're not leaning into the Word expectantly, saying, God, show us yourself, show us your Son, then we'll come in and we'll walk out and we'll say, well, that was boring or I didn't get anything. Well, I can't do that. That's something God's got to do in your heart. He's got to give you a hunger and thirst for righteousness, that it wouldn't be background music in your life, but that you would behold Christ in the hearing of the Word of God. I long for that in your lives. God worked through Paul's proclamation of Jesus to persuade many, verse 4. And I know many of you in this room, you, you know Jesus, you, you've trusted in Jesus, but I want to persuade you this morning to not rest on your laurels and, and live in the past moment of your faith, but to lean into Jesus afresh in your life today and tomorrow and to feast on him in God's Word. Jews were joined. Do you see that? They were joined to Paul and Silas along with God-fearing Greeks. Not a few of them, and not a few of them, but many of the influential women in the city. They were joined to Paul and Silas. You say, what's the big deal about that? Well, it's in the passive voice, which means that God, when he saves you, he joins you to a new people. Some of you in this room don't know Jesus yet. And when Jesus, when he opens your heart and your eyes and your mind to behold Christ and you realize I'm a wretched sinner who doesn't deserve anything but Christ came to give me himself and cancel my debt and if I believe on him, he will change you on the inside. He will make you new and when he makes you new, he puts you with a new people. You don't get to trust Jesus individually and not get a new people. Sorry, you get us. You don't just get Jesus too, you get a whole new family that you're supposed to live with and serve with and worship with and work with and be together in the gospel with. To join Jesus in salvation is to join his people. You can't get away from it. We've seen this all before, right? Jesus proclaimed from the scriptures, Jews and God-fearers rescued by Jesus. And when this happens, some people get really excited, they get really happy, they get changed, they get saved, they get delivered, and they get a new family. But some people aren't too happy about it. Let's keep considering this text. Some, we see, will be closed to the scriptures, seeking justification among earthly authorities rather than Christ. So that was all introduction and now the two major points. Two responses to the Word of God. The first response is some will hear the Word of God and they'll be close to it. They'll seek to justify themselves. They'll seek to appeal to others for their approval or their help from wriggling out of their responsibility to respond to Christ. 
So in verse 4, the Spirit persuades many to trust in Jesus. But in verse 5, we find that many Jews, meaning the Jewish leaders, were jealous. Verse 5, they were jealous. What is jealousy? Where does it come from? Jealousy arises when we believe someone has something that we don't and which we believe we deserve, and they do not. Let me say that again. Jealousy arises when we believe someone has something we don't and which we believe we deserve and which they don't deserve. When we're jealous, anybody ever been jealous? When we're jealous, we have an inflated view of ourselves and a diminished view of God. Believing that he owes us something that he's withholding from us. These Jewish leaders have been reading the scriptures with self-focused lenses, presumably for generations. Then Paul and his missionary team show up and they proclaim Jesus for three Sabbaths. And what happens? Boom! An explosion of the gospel and following of Jesus in the city. These Jewish leaders took pride in having the Bible. God gave us the Old Testament. He he spoke to us. But rather than reading the Bible and hearing it as a witness to Christ, they read with the wrong set of lenses. Rather than having Jesus lenses on, they just had Jewish lenses on. Rather than reading with magnifying glasses that would magnify Jesus and minimize themselves, instead they were reading with mirrors. It's like they put on mirrors every day, just reflecting back to them their own same self of their own sense of self-importance and religious entitlement. They go to the Bible and they'd be, "Wow, yeah, that's right. Look at me. I'm pretty amazing." Instead of, "Wow, behold." Christ. I need this king. I need this savior. I need this forgiver. These Jews were blinded by jealousy. A jealousy that was fueled by pride and Paul's presentation of Jesus as Lord and Savior and anointed king, the Christ who makes a way for people from all nations to be forgiven and reconciled to God. It's not sitting well with them, but listen, They don't have a biblical leg to stand on. Does that make sense? They they don't like what they're hearing from the Bible, but they cannot make a biblical rebuttal. So what do they do in verse 5? They don't appeal to the Scripture, they appeal to the crowds. And they expose their wicked hearts by taking some wicked men of the rabble. Here we've got supposedly highfalutin religious people going to find the dregs of society to create a riot in the city and then blame it on Paul and Silas. Wow, that's pretty nice. They provoke a riot in the city. They raid Jason's house, apparently a new believer in Thessalonica, with the hopes of bringing the mission team to stand trial before the crowd. The word crowd in verse 5 comes from a Greek word from which we get the word democracy. In other words, they don't want to have the argument on the basis of what the Bible says because they're going to lose on the basis of what the Bible says. Instead, let's take it to the people. Let's sway the people who don't really have biblical knowledge anyway, and let's get a verdict. These religious leaders want a quick, unjust verdict that is contrary to the truth. 
Did you know that's what people do when they're trumped by the Bible? When the Bible exposes the heart, when the Bible reveals what is true and that you need Christ alone, what do people do? They ignore the Bible, or they distort the Bible, or they appeal to the crowds and make those who are faithful to the Bible out to be the troublemakers. Have you noticed that in our society? Well, the Christians are the problem. The people who trust in Jesus are the problem. Now, we're not actually going to reason from the scriptures about this because we would be indicted. We would be wrong. And when they can't locate Paul and his team, what do they do? They drag Jason and some other believers before the city authorities. They are clearly upset and agitated. How do we know? They're shouting. These men who've turned the world upside down, they've come here too. You better take care of the problem. Now there's an irony, right? There's an irony here because the gospel was turning their world upside down, but not in the way that they were implying. If they had listened to the gospel and believed the gospel, the gospel would have not turned their world upside down, but right side up. Because it's the gospel that gives us the right perspective on ourselves and our sin and on Jesus, the Savior, the King, and the solution. But religious people who think that they are impressing God with their religious deeds and their titles and how long they've served, become defensive about their position, their history, their programs, their stuff. And sometimes they'll even shout you down, cause a scene, and blame it on someone else. So what do they do? They tell the city authorities that the outsiders have come, almost like an alien invasion. The aliens have landed in Thessalonica. They're going to turn our world upside down. They've been challenging the authority of Caesar. How? By saying there is another King Jesus. Now you can rest assured, they said there's another King Jesus. But he was no threat to Caesar. These Jews, people who were supposed to be looking for Christ, had apparently become quite comfortable with life as they knew it. Had they not? The the Bible tells them, look for a king, look for a king who will be sent to Israel. And what do they do when when their king is announced to to them? They're like, well, are you rivaling, are you challenging Caesar? Let me ask you, are you so comfortable with your life that you've neglected your need for Christ? If the Spirit of God and the preaching of His Word would come home to your heart today and remind you of your need for Christ, would you say, oh, you're just trying to turn my world upside down? Oh, you're just trying to invade my life? Or would you see that Christ comes to you as Savior and Redeemer and King and gives you someone to follow who's going to last and endure far longer than anything else you put your hope in? The people and the governing authorities don't want to have anything to do with an insurrection. So what do they do? They collect a bail from Jason and the brothers, and then they let them go. Kellum says this, Jason and the others were forced to guarantee Paul and Silas's good behavior and quiet departure in order to be released. So in verse 10, what happens? They send Paul and Silas out of the city by night to Berea, a city well down the path and off the main route of the Roman highway of that time. In other words, they went to a safe place, presumably, to continue the mission. About 45 miles away from Thessalonica. And yet, look at verse 13. When these jealous Jews hear about the mission continuing in Berea, what do they do? They make the 45-mile hike 
and they agitate and stir up the crowds there as well. But once more, God wins. Paul leaves, Timothy and Silas remain, and the mission multiplies. But before we get to Berea, I want to clarify something about this closed posture towards the Scripture. The problem with the Jews who were jealous was not their brains. It was not their intellect. If you had given them an IQ test, they would have scored just fine. The problem was not their head, it was their hearts. Their brains were working just fine, but they could not stomach their need for a Savior or the growing popularity of the message. They feel attacked, so what do they do? They attack. Without faith in Jesus, they stand condemned before God, so what do they do? They condemn the messengers of the gospel. They cannot win the argument from the scriptures, so what do they try to do? They try to win the argument with force and fear. Their assumptions are challenged, so they take it to the crowd and the city officials. And here's what you need to understand this morning. If you're wrestling with Christ, if you're wrestling, if you're going to trust in Him, until Jesus returns, if you try to avoid Jesus, you will always be able to find a crowd to sympathize with you and make you feel justified in rejecting Jesus. Does that make sense? As long as you're alive, until Jesus comes back, you're like, well, I just, I want to ignore the Bible. I want to ignore my sin. I want to ignore my need for a Savior. You can walk out of these doors and you can find somebody to support you in rejecting Jesus. You can find a support group to counsel you and make you feel really good about ignoring King Jesus. But church, listen and listen well. The crowd no matter how good they make you feel about canceling Jesus, cannot cancel the truth about Jesus or your responsibility to trust and follow Him. Let me say it this way. Refusing to believe the truth doesn't make it fiction. Does that make sense? You can refuse to believe the truth, but it doesn't make the truth not true. Jesus is the Christ, and you can try to Stiff arm him, give him the Heisman, go find a crowd to rally with. But when Jesus returns, Philippians 2 tells us every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So you bow the knee now or you bow it later, but if you bow it later, it's going to be too late. So don't go find a crowd to support you in telling you, in in believing that the truth is alive. Because Christ is alive. He conquered the grave and he forgives all who trust in him. Jesus is a king greater than Caesar. And forgiveness is found in Christ alone. Some will be closed to the scriptures. And they will look for a crowd to support them in denying the truth. But lastly, some will receive the scriptures as a witness to Christ and they will believe on him. Aren't you glad for that? Some will receive the scriptures for what they are. They are a witness to Jesus and they will believe on Jesus. They will look for Jesus in their daily lives. They will live for Jesus to the best of their ability with the Spirit's help. Because they encounter Christ in the word. In verse 11, the Jews 
hearing the scriptures explained at the synagogue in Berea are called more noble than those in Thessalonica. This just means that they were open-minded. They were more tolerant. They were more willing to hear something in a different way, something they hadn't heard before. In other words, they were teachable. Any of you ever coached any, any sport or taught anything? It's nice to have coachable students, is it not? It's not, nice to have coachable athletes. These Jews in Berea were like, okay, we, we never thought of it that way, but that sounds pretty cool. Let's, let's hear some more. They're, they're open to hearing things differently than they've heard before. And that posture of humility, of humble openness before the Word of God Church, we don't need that just to believe in Jesus. We don't need it just one time. We need it for a lifetime of following Jesus. When we encounter questions and conversations in the life of the church, what is good, what is better, what is best, where do we go? We don't just go to the preacher's head. We don't just go to a committee. We don't poll the crowd. We go to the Word of God. And we say, What is the theme or the theology or the trajectory of God's heart and how would it inform what we do? We keep seeking out the word of God to behold Christ, to believe on Christ, to follow Christ. We need this openness of heart that we see in these Berean Jews. We need to say with the psalmist, blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes, Psalm 119, 12. We need to say, open my eyes, one of my favorite verses in scripture, open my eyes that I might behold the wonderful things out of your law, Psalm 119, verse 18. The openness of the Berean Jews to the word is demonstrated in what we read next in verse 11. They received the word. Do you see that in verse 11? They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily To see if these things were so. There is a whole bunch of information in verse 11. First, the word receive. What does it mean to receive the word? The word means to welcome or to embrace with energy. It's like a good friend. Maybe maybe a childhood friend or a high school friend. And then you were separated for years because... He went to California and you were here on the East Coast and then suddenly you're reunited and your friend pulls into the driveway. You didn't know he's going to come. You got a last minute text and you're like, this is awesome, brother. So-and-so is coming. He pulls into the driveway and and when he walks down the sidewalk, what do you do? You're not like sitting on your couch, right? Just like, well, I guess he'll just let himself in. You're like running out the door. Woo, this is awesome. Come on in, bro. That's what the word means. That's the way they were with the Bible. Are you that way with the Bible? You know how fortunate and blessed we are to have the Word of God? Is it getting dusty on your shelf at home? Or are you receiving it? Welcoming it? And then how did they receive it? If we had any confusion, what does it say? With all eagerness, meaning readiness, anticipation, or promptness. When your heart is open to the Word of God and the Christ that it reveals, there's an eagerness, an excitement, and a hunger. Are you hungry for God's Word? Are you hungry for the Bible? Or are you more likely to check your watch if the sermon runs to 40 minutes? We live in a culture that is looking for microwave answers and one-liners, but Christians, real Christians, seek and crave 
Christ. We don't do our salvation through Twitter. We do it through the revealed Word of God. Jesus comes to us by way of the Word. The answers for your marriage are found in beholding Jesus. The answers for your unwise spending habits and addiction to debt are found in beholding Jesus. The answer to your bad attitude at work is found in beholding Jesus. And we become a bunch of pragmatists who want one-liners for our life. We want a little devotional that we can read and get one quick sentence and then put Jesus on the shelf until the next day. And that is not the disposition of people who seek and follow after Christ. They receive the word with eagerness. Not just a little bit of eagerness, by the way, all eagerness. All the eagerness they had was allocated to the Word of God. These Jews put all their eagerness in the gospel basket. They welcomed the Word as explained by the missionaries, not with closed, dismissive, critical spirits, but with a desire to hear, consider, and process the message. And we know this because they didn't just show up on Sabbath to hear the scriptures, did they? What did they do? They listened and then they went home and they examined the word daily. To examine means to investigate, to scrutinize, to ask questions. In other words, they heard the Bible explained and they went to one another and they said, does this check out? And guess what they figured out? The gospel checks out. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He really came from heaven to be born of the Virgin Mary, Isaiah chapter 7, to live a perfect life and offer himself as a sinless substitute for all who believe on him. He really conquered the grave. He really rose on the third day. He really ascended to the right hand of the Father. He has really poured out His Spirit who is right now, even in this room today, for those who know their sinners and need Christ. He is, through the belief And the hearing of the word of God, he is doing a miracle in the hearts of people who believe on Christ. He's taking the death of Jesus and saying, you deserve to die, but if you trust in Jesus, his death counts in your place. And if you trust in Jesus, his resurrection life unto the Father now becomes resurrection life on the inside. You can be forgiven through the Spirit's work in the hearing of the word of God even today. The gospel checks out. This morning, if you're a Christian, I think the application is clear. Am I eagerly receiving the word of God as a witness to Christ? Am I longing for and looking to behold and encounter and love my Savior? And if you don't know yet know Jesus, y'all, there's a king other than Caesar. There's a king that's greater than Joe Biden or Donald Trump or any other president we will ever have. His name is Jesus. He rules and reigns in righteousness. And those who repent of their sin and run to him and live for him will be forgiven and be with him forever. Don't put it off another day. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, thank you for your word. It is truth. Open the eyes and the hearts of the people in this room, God, who already know you, to know you more. And those who don't yet know you, God, maybe to surrender to you today, to trust you today, to obey you today, to leave sin behind and to run to Jesus. God, we thank you. 
that the debt was paid at the cross, that the offer of forgiveness has been made, and that all who repent and believe are saved. Bring them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.